views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I've seen old photographs of this period. An economic upheaval had occurred. It was called Depression, circa 1930. Quite barbaric. It is Thursday, March 27th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today, and before I get into our topic headings and some of the things we'll be discussing today, it is on a sad note that I must begin the show. I just wanted to make uh, take a moment now to note and reflect upon the passing of my good friend Jim Montag and fellow conspirator in politics, and in fact, as this broadcast begins, I believe uh, funeral services for Jim are beginning right now. Um, Jim and I go back quite a ways. I met a lot of his family and friends that I didn't even know and hadn't met before at, at the funeral home yesterday. And, of course, Jim was a guest on this show on July 12, 2007, when we discussed issues of gun control and self-defense and just one of the issues Jim was passionate about. I got to know Jim pretty well over the past 15, 20 years or so. I only met him after his retirement from uh, CNCP, Telecommunications, where he worked for almost 40 years. And uh, so we certainly shared a lot of political adventures together. And here are just some of the things that you might remember Jim from. Um, he certainly he was a founder and chief spokesperson for the London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition, which was the first group that actually made municipal property taxes a real issue in this city. And he was a key player in leading London City Hall to its ever first ever, really, zero property tax increase. And uh, along with me, Jim, and we were both executive members of Hold All London Taxes as well, which was active concurrently at the time. And I remember together these two groups managed to get over 5,000 tax protesters gathered outside City Hall to protest London's tax increases. And Jim was, over time, on the executive of the London West Conservative Party Association, an executive of the local Reform Party Riding Association when that party was active. He was even a Freedom Party candidate in the Oxford Riding about three or four provincial elections ago. Um, Jim was also the first candidate for London mayor that I can ever recall who made the mayoralty race actually seem like a three-way race. I think at the time, I think it was Gosnell and Mann who were running at the time. And he received more votes for a third-place mayor candidate than any other candidate in London's history. And at the time, he also was ahead of London Middlesex Taxpayers, which ran a slate of candidates both for the Board of Education and City Hall. And so you can get the idea, Jim was a pretty active guy in the community. I even learned more about him from his obituary that I did not know, because these were not parts of his life that I really shared uh, with him. I knew a little bit about it, but apparently he was an avid outdoorsman, you know, naturalist, a gardener, and was involved with many community groups, including London's Rock and Mineral Society, um, uh, tree, and uh, more recently he's been the past president of the CN Pensioners and Probus and seven-year member of the Multiple Myeloma Support Group. So you get the general idea. Jim was a very uh, involved member of the community, and he will be missed greatly. And so with that in mind, uh, I think he'll be missed by all of us, even some of you who do not know Jim or never met him, because uh, he did have an effect on you, especially if you live in London. Now, on to the show. Today on the show, what are we going to talk about? Uh, later on, I'm going to talk about uh, technology, and uh, I don't know if you saw in the paper uh, Greenspan's apology for not being too technological. I'll have a few comments on that. Last week, we did a bit on global warming um, politics. This week, we're going to switch to a little global warming science, and a little talk on the poverty trap. Uh, where might we be headed with terms of how the, our economy is going right now? And first off, I want to begin with some, what I would call, what I'm hearing a lot of, is Depression-era thinking in the 21st century. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to get involved in the show. 
And you can email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And, of course, to let you know about our new website, um, www.justrightmedia.org, you can get an archive of all the past shows, including the current one being broadcast, CHRW's uh, latest, and even the one that uh, Jim was on. You can get that one now as well. Now, you know, everybody's been talking about the economy lately, and I think it's reached a particular intensity over the past two weeks or so. And I know I myself right here on this show last week warned you all about this coming uh, tide of anti-trade protectionism and both union and left-wing interests, you know, calling for more government intervention in our lives, higher taxes, and whatever government measures may be deemed necessary to prop up their particular interest, uh, be it economic or otherwise. U.S. slump crashes area plants, reads the front page business section of the London Free Press on March 21st. On the same day, NDP pushes for Buy Ontario. Well, on the flip side of the page is the headline, Ontario to fight proposed U.S. tax, end quote. Yikes, it's starting to sound like there's a lot of agitation for trade wars, and, you know, I think that's going to have casualties on both sides of the border. The U.S. economy appears to be headed into a recession, and, of course, our governments all want to do something to, quote, help us out. Uh, Labor leader Buzz Hargrove was recently in the media calling for higher taxes, uh, not directly, of course, but by being opposed to lower corporate taxes. You know, he, But he was explicitly calling for lower interest rates and a lower dollar. And when he was challenged to explain why the province of Alberta seems to be doing so much better than Ontario, Hargrove re- replied basically, you can't go wrong in, on, in, in Alberta, rather, because you know it's got oil reserves. Of course, you can't go wrong. How can you lose money if you've got oil reserves? And, of course, he went on about the supposedly unfair trade that exists with those countries who may sell their goods to us but will not buy our goods without tariffs attached or even erect outright uh, trade barriers against them. The free trade issue I dealt with last week, and you can listen to that show, of course, by visiting uh, justrightmedia.org, where you'll also hear my debate with uh, QP leader Sid Ryan, which kind of reflects on this issue as well. But just to speak briefly to the inevitability of economic success if you have oil, Uh, consider as we did in detail on this show about a year ago when discussing gas prices, how, how Iran actually had to ration gas in the midst of plenty. There they are, they've got lots of oil, lots of natural resource, but no refineries. And so the government was subsidizing the price of gas to its citizen, and in so doing, you know, they, by helping them, quote, practically brought its own economy to a halt. And the country still can't attract the investment necessary for prosperity and for actually refining the fuel, which they have to do mostly outside the country. So, you know, just having the resource is not enough. In fact, you know, how do, how do you explain the success of countries that don't have a lot of resources? And, of course, the real difference is, how free their markets or unfree their markets are. And by free markets, we mean free from government intervention in the determination of people's economic choices, what they buy, who they choose to buy from. Not not that free market doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, break the law, uh, you know, engage in fraud. Uh, People like to attach those notions to it, but that's just not it. Now, you know, when I consider some of these... uh, recommendations that, uh, for example, Buzz Hargrove gave, like higher taxes, okay, you want to keep taxes high. My current understanding is that the corporate income tax rate, if you combine both federal and provincial across Canada, averages around 25%, give or take, depending on the province, of which Ontario is one of the highest, which is, of course, Flaherty's complaint that we hear lately. Now, what this means is that everything we buy from a corporation, that means our food, our clothing, our appliances, and yes, our cars, already has this 25% tax built into the pre-sales tax price, okay? And yet here we have the leader of one of the very unions that should be representing the interests of his members, you know, uh, wouldn't entertain lowering income tax as a measure to increase Canadian job prospects. Now, of course, they're happy with the recent McGinty plan, which... uh, will subsidize only their cars but not spread the benefit to the rest of society. So you can see the self-interest at work there. Um, you know, although corporations have legal status as persons, okay, they are persons in law, but in reality, of course, corporations are not people. They're pools of capital. 
And capital is what drives labor, and capital drives business, and capital drives innovation and invention and discovery. So to advocate taxation of corporations is merely to drive the price of everything they make up for the rest of us, because they don't pay the taxes, we pay the taxes. You all know that, right? And, of course, to reduce progress and opportunity for the future. And here's an interesting sideline I've noticed for years and years. It's always interesting how lefties and socialist types are so into high tax rates. Even if a lower rate produces more revenue for the government to blow on social programs as it did during parts of the Harris era. Harris got no end of pain from the left wing and says, oh, you're lowering the rates too high. Meanwhile, government revenues were going up. But they didn't care that the government had more money. They wanted to punish those rich people, you know. And so even Mike Harris's government continued to raise spending annually and routinely. And to this day is still blamed for cutting funding to Ontario's health care system when in fact it was the federal liberals that actually cut the funding while the provincial conservatives increased it. You know, it comes back to the whole conservative thing. I remember during the Harris years how the Ottawa Citizen editorials at the time continually lamented how the Harris government would always brag about how much money it was able to spend on social programs to justify its accomplishments. Because, you know, I've, I've said that before, it's almost the only way a government can justify and show you something that it's done. It can show you the bottom line of its spending. It can't show your results because they just get, you know, they, they turn into some fog out there in the marketplace because it's not really measured in a private market. And, and uh, you know, so deep is the left's hatred of affluence uh, which, again, I focused on last week with respect to global warming, that they would actually forego additional government revenues for the pleasure of punishing the affluent with higher tax rates. You know, ironic is just one word for it. Then there's the argument of the, uh, the lower dollar. Canada's dollar has not moved anywhere but downward relative to many other currencies other than the U.S. And we have to remember the Canadian dollar didn't really rise. The U.S. dollar fell. So there's only two ways for us to lower our dollar, okay? We can either increase the value of the U.S. dollar, which is outside our purview and ability, you know, which is where the relative problem originates, or we can decrease the value of the Canadian dollar. And you can really mainly do that through a couple of ways. One, you can in increase trade barriers, which force those within the barrier to pay higher domestic prices for everything which in effect decreases how much they can buy with their money. So in, in effect, your money becomes worth less. And, or you can just inflate the currency. You can print money, more dollars, or expand the money supply, or lower interest rates, of course, which also expands the money supply and puts more money out there. And of course, which is the very trap that caught millions of homeowners in the United States in the middle of the U.S. subprime mortgage mess, which in turn contributed to the whole recession-oriented economy we seem to be headed towards. Now, here's a real challenge for Buzz Hargrove. If, as he suggests, that a lower dollar was a good thing for his members, and given that our current dollar is worth now, say, 20-25% more relative to the U.S. dollar, then why not accept a 20-25% to 25 pay decrease? And you'd be right back where you started, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't you be right back where you started? And Canadian labor would become competitive again with the U.S. labor, but the unions would never go for that because that would kind of expose the relative cheap labor rates that Canadians have been offering to Americans in the past. And that's kind of been hidden through the exchange rate. And uh, so, again, both of these options, I think, are really bad. Now, of course, there's a third option. We could completely change our trading partners so that our vulnerability to the U.S. dollar exchange would be not as great. And, uh, but, of course, the unions and left wing are violently opposed to that, too, because they cite unfair trading advantages that the so-called impoverished countries have, uh, which is, by the way, uh, you know, slowly occurring on a continuing basis because our countries are, both Canada and the states, starting to trade with other countries. On the other hand, for Canadian consumers, American goods and services have suddenly become much cheaper and affordable uh, for them to buy. So, you know, it works better for um, consumers for our dollar to be high relative to the American ones, because now we got them working for us. They're, they're giving us their labor at a cheaper rate. I know it doesn't feel like that at first, but that's how it works out. Now, lower interest rates. You know, if you, if you want lower interest rates, you can't just wish for that, because just by lowering them, quote, artificially, that, that again is an inflationary pressure. And again, the very kind of thinking that precipitated the U.S. mortgage collapse and the pending bank failures. 
more dollars, chasing fewer goods, higher prices. You know, that's just natural. Uh, you get the picture. I was listening to an investment counselor over the past week who was warning against uh, panic and who suggested that what we're really facing is a short-term term crisis that will be recovered against a long-term stability. And I kind of think that's generally the picture we can expect. And that everything would more or less uh, take care of itself in the large sense, in the macroeconomic sense. But then he added a very important caveat. Quote, unless there's an incredible amount of political interference, end quote. And he was concerned that we might start resorting to Depression-era measures. And uh, how much he would consider incredible, um, incredible amount of political interference, I don't really know. He didn't really elaborate on that. But perhaps the following article may give us some insight to the terrifying prospect of that possibility. The whistle blows and an era ends, uh, reads the, the heading over an editorial by uh, University of Toronto professor emeritus Michael Bliss, which appeared in the National Post March 20th. And I was really shocked. I haven't seen an essay trying to say this for a long, long time. Uh, not since the last time our dollar was at par with the Americans, come to think of it. Quote, The global economic crisis that has generated the collapse of the investment bank Bear Stearns and the wildest gyrations of central bank policy in generations is almost certain to get much worse before it gets better. But even if it does not, we have reached a turning point in recent economic history. For more than 30 years, the conventional wisdom of the world has been that markets should be allowed to operate with as few regulatory fetters as possible. Now the whistle has been blown on all of this and blown most desperately by the players themselves and the great free-for-all. Surely it is crystal clear that the flaws were in free enterprise itself, in the gullibility of borrowers and lenders in the subprime mortgage market, the hubris of investment bankers, the greed of hedge fund managers, misplaced faith in rating agencies, computer modeling and math-crazed economists. <laughs> math-crazed economists. Uh, the business community has to be saved from itself, he says, as market players no longer trust the integrity of their own marketplaces. So now, government is going to call the tune. In the next few years, there will be massive new regulation of business, massive new taxation of wealth, and sustained vilification of the values that have driven Wall Street and Bay Street. The quiet times of easy affluence are over. There's that word again, affluence. Listen for it and watch for it in everything you read. The next few years will be characterized by turbulence, deficits, new taxes, populist demands for more regulation, and a surge of neo-egalitarianism and resentment of conspicuous wealth. There we go again. Now, in response to this, in a column sitting right beside it, we had another one entitled Road to Heaven Still Paved with Free Markets, written by the National Post editorial Terence Corcoran. And he writes in response, quote, And now my good friend Michael Bliss has emerged from retirement to announce the collapse of the capitalist game and the beginning of a return to regulation on a scale not seen since the Great Depression. It's no surprise there's a lot of this kind of talk around. First, whether we're heading into some kind of economic cataclysm, I cannot say. Alan Greenspan wrote the other day that the current financial crisis in the U.S. is, quote, likely to be judged in retrospect as the most wrenching since the end of the Second World War, end quote. Yikes. <laughs> But he writes, while that's bad, it's a far cry from the economy-wide devastation of the Great Depression. It lasted 10 years. Economic output fell 8.6% in 1930, 64 in 1931, and 13% in 1932. Unemployment hit 25%. Wages fell 42%, and world trade dropped 65%. Unless we plunge into that kind of economic hell... It's hard to imagine a return to what Mr. Bliss calls massive new regulation of business, massive new taxation of wealth, and sustained vilification of the values that have driven Wall Street and Bay Street. He certainly seems convinced there's been an awesome failure of free enterprise, and he seems to be taking far too much glee in the idea that politicians, bureaucrats, and regulators will and should be, calling it, be called in to overthrow free market capitalism. It's not as if they operated in a deregulated free market unfettered by bureaucratic and political interference. Banks have been subject to elaborate controls for years. Where did the U.S. subprime mortgage boom come from? 
In the early 1990s, the Clinton administration asked the U.S. Department of Housing to come up with a national home ownership strategy. And it worked really well, some might say, too well. If there's a backlash to come, maybe it will turn, as it should, against the massive regulatory regimes that already exist, end quote. Well, you know, I'd say don't hold your breath for that one, Mr. Corcoran. <laughs> While I fully sympathize with what he is saying, I would go one step further to suggest that instead of being hard to imagine, uh, you know, the massive new regulation of business, taxation of wealth, and sustained vilification of the values that have driven the marketplace, uh, that's precisely among the forces that I think have caused the current crisis and will continue to cause the future crisis as government continues to increase uh, not decrease its grip on just about anything it can get away with. So I don't share Mr. Corcoran's optimism on that particular count, though I share his intent. And, and, and uh, you know, my experience has been that it's just too easy for today's politicians and governments to give in to the gimme demands uh, that they know will buy votes. And I don't see that process ending uh, particularly soon. In fact, you know, his very example, Clint Clinton's home ownership strategy, is a perfect example of this process. To give it away, you know, that price is going to be paid. I don't know why people think they can fool uh, the economic process, the free market, because it, you know, those prices, if they're freely set, are telling you what the real story is. As soon as the government gets involved, you're not getting the right information anymore. And even as I speak, governments at all levels are preparing themselves to, you know, bail out investors and financially assist others hurt in the market collapse. Now, you've heard the term profit and loss. Profit and loss. That's what the capitalist system is about. And I want to stress that. It's profit and loss. Milton Friedman used to try to drill that into people. You can't have one without the other. And it's a great irony that it's so many socialist types who continue to see the loss part of the scenario as a failing of capitalism. When in fact, that's really the strength of capitalism. It's under socialism and other systems that you're not allowed to fail. They try to prop you up all the time. Uh, you know, socialists and other enemies of capitalism, you know, they view capitalism as a dog-eat-dog -dog system that has no conscience and no concern for the social values and interests of the community. But is it true? I don't think so. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this is really a complete psychological and philosophical projection of what socialism itself is onto capitalism. And I'll, and I'll explain that. You know, the fundamental principle of capitalism is trade value for value, based upon voluntary, consensual agreement and contract. The job of government under capitalism is to ensure that every citizen's right to consent is not violated. This doesn't apply just to monetary issues. It applies to your life, your marriage, your sex life. You have to be in a consensual situation. I mean, that is the criteria that, that determines a loving, that separates a loving relationship from rape, doesn't it? So it's a very important uh, principle. All relationships under a free capitalist society are, and must be by definition, consensual. And, and so, you know, if that isn't a conscientious social value, then I don't know what is. And to the extent that something is not consensual, it also can't be described as free or capitalistic, and it also can't be described as being good, if you ask me. Now, socialism, communism, fascism, and a host of other collective isms are all distinguished from capitalism in that they do not operate on voluntary consensual agreement and contract, but instead operate on forced agreements, on prohibitions and bans, on, on personal and economic activity, on government monopolies, prohibiting trade in certain goods and services, and on a continual robbing of Peter to pay for Paul to solve every emotional or every imaginal, uh, imaginable social ill. Government now consumes a greater percentage of each individual's income than their combined necessities of living. Holy smokes, folk, let, folks, let's get to take a look at this. And, as, of course, as the inevitable poverty lines grow, all they can come up with is more of the same, you know, corporate handouts to, all, to the very evil corporations they hate so much, and welfare handouts so that, of course, they have to buy votes. And by welfare, I don't always mean welfare for the poor. I mean welfare for all of us. It includes our health care system, our education system. A lot of us don't need help from government, and yet we're still taking it. So when it comes to a dog-eat-dog -dog philosophy, I think social, socialism itself pretty well fits the description. And, you know, if you have to wait in line for critical health care treatment, then remember 
That's just socialism's way of showing you how much it cares and is concerned with you. Now, of course, we live in what is called a mixed economy with elements of both freedom and state controls and monopolies, which leaves a lot of people kind of confused as to which parts of the economy are socialist and which are capitalist. Or even worse, and here's the worst one, it leads to this belief that the two diametrically opposed philosophies can somehow coexist in perpetuity. And uh, that's just not so. As so many nations in the past have discovered repeatedly throughout history. In crises, basically, whether real or imagined, governments always must be seen to act and to do something, to minimize, to prevent or eliminate the harm from the crisis. So, you know, there goes the visible hand of government rushes in to replace the invisible hand of the marketplace. And so it is that there are, again, continued efforts to direct large sums of tax dollars and, you know, to fight poverty, especially in light of the expected hard times ahead, ahead of us now. And with this issue in mind, mainly poverty, I'd like to remind you you're listening to Just Right on CHRW, 94.9 FM, and that the following clip that you are about to hear is from the folks over at the Crossroads Television System, which is number 16 on your Rogers cable dial. Uh, where I had the opportunity to discuss the issue of government uh, poverty programs on February 5th, about seven weeks ago now. Uh, the open line TV talk show On the Line was hosted by Christine Williams, and of course she always hosts the show. And joining us in the discussion that day was Michael Shapcott, senior fellow of the Wellesley Institute and a proud socialist, who was promoting more government efforts to address the issue of poverty. And for the next eight or nine minutes or so, here is part of that conversation. Poverty plan crucial, activists says. There you go. Now, what's behind this story is this. It's been discussed, and it keeps on gaining the headlines of business news that we're going to face. In fact, Perhaps we're seeing it already south of the border, and we tend to be affected by anything that goes on in the States. There's a sneeze over there. We're going to feel it over here, primarily in Ontario. Now, there's a predicted economic downturn that we're all looking for. A group of poverty advocates have said here, we've got to start looking out specifically for the poor, that because of this downturn, there needs to be put in place an anti-poverty strategy immediately by the Ontario government. Now, of course, we're going to hear both sides of the issue. Look, when, a, when recession hits, we don't know who's going to be affected and how. You're going to find middle-class people that are going to be drastically affected. They're going to end up part of what, what's known as the poor in this country. It's, there's no simple solution. When something like this hits, people end up losing their houses. The poor get poorer, as they say. The rich get richer. So the question is, do we need to put a poverty plan in place? Do we know enough to put one in place? And how do we do so? It's been suggested here that we need to look at issues like minimum wage, perhaps increasing minimum wage. This is something yeah. that's being discussed uh, quite a bit. I that's one of the a, strategies. I don't think we need a poverty plan. I think we need a wealth plan. And we need a plan to make our nation wealthier, make our province wealthier, and forget about poverty. Because if you're, all you're thinking about is poverty, that's where you're going to head. And that's exactly what we've been doing. Well, now, the Michael. way to create wealth mm -hmm. is to do almost everything the opposite of what's being advocated by the so-called poverty. <laughs> People mm -hmm. want to eliminate poverty. I've heard it all before. I've got newspaper clippings going back years and years and years that read exactly like that. We've got to start a poverty plan. We're going to wipe out child poverty by the year 2000. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it's all ridiculous because it's based on a completely false assumption that poverty is somehow uh, that it can be erased just magically by giving people money or taking money from those who earn it and giving it to those who don't. That doesn't eliminate poverty. Poverty is a much broader condition. And if you want to identify poverty, to define it, which is a big issue that they talk about, uh, we only talk about relative poverty. If you've got Peter and Paul on an island by themselves and they're both poor, dirt poor, then neither of us would consider them poor. But as soon as one of them worked 
and created some wealth and built a little hut, he'd be rich and the other guy would be poor and that would be the end of it. And all of a sudden, that man's virtue who built something is considered evil and the person who did nothing is considered deserving and needs the other person's help. And that is a very destructive philosophy, I think, to any society that practices it. And that's what you see in most government programs. It's a different matter. It's totally different from charity, from other ways of helping, but when the government gets into it, they can't do anything. Government has no resources of its own. It takes them from other people. Those other people are invariably the middle class. The middle class gets beat from both ends through corporate welfare and through welfare for the poor, and that's why they're hurting so much. So I, I, don't, I don't know what solution you're going to have other than a layoff, lower taxes, um, you know, Get rid of the minimum wages, for heaven's sake. You don't, don't need the minimum wage. If you can't afford to work for something that somebody's going to offer you, you won't work for them. It's automatic that you wouldn't do so, wouldn't you? Michael! Well, <laughs> hey, go to it, Michael. <laughs> you know, we, Canada and, and, and Ontario and, uh, and, and southern Ontario in particular in the last 10, 15 years has been fantastically wealthy. We've generated more wealth than we've ever generated in the history of this region. And yet, we've also generated more poverty. And uh, yes, you can measure poverty in things like the number of people who are evicted because they can't pay their rent. You can measure poverty uh, in terms of the number of people who can't afford to put food on the table uh, and therefore are starving. They're going for days without, uh, for a day without eating, and they have to go to food banks in order to get food. So you can measure poverty. But what's important is that many countries around the world are realizing that there are, in fact, effective strategies to end poverty. The United Kingdom has a, a strategy to end poverty. Ireland has one of the best strategies to end poverty. Poverty. So there's no uh, poverty and, over and, there? And, and Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's, it's being reduced. What's Newfoundland and Labrador has adopted one. What, okay, before, before we go on, here's what the group wants. Okay, one of them is to raise the minimum wage, another strategy to provide more affordable housing, another one, well, the government needs to define poverty. So there needs to be more input on how you even define poverty. And the other one is, well, that was it. That was it, because there's been a lot of debate around this. Now, I'm curious here because you're talking about that they found certain strategies to put in place to do this. How do you do it? Like, like how, what strategies do we need? Well, it's very simple. If you mm -hmm. want to eliminate poverty, you've got to get, get more money in the pockets of poor people. And I'll tell you, one way you don't do that uh, is by the kind of cuts that we've seen. In the last 15 years, we've seen things like cutting income assistance programs like welfare. There was a brilliant idea. Take money away from the poorest people in our society, give it to the richest people in the form of tax cuts, which is the brilliant idea that's been followed over the last 15 years. What does that do? It makes poor people even poorer. The, the uh, people who are forced uh, onto welfare in this society are living on less money than they've ever lived before, yet rents are up. The cost of food is up. The cost of energy is up. Life is much more miserable. So the very simple solutions are to get more money into the pockets. Okay, we're going to have to go people. for a break. But here's an argument I hear, and I want you. To, I'd, I'd like you to answer it after the break. That to raise the minimum wage, you end up actually creating a huge problem. In that, there are a lot of employers out there that could only afford to hire people on minimum wage. So what you end up happening, what, en what ends up happening is you raise that. A lot of these very people lose their jobs. And another theory talks about relativity. You raise the bottom. Okay, the, the minimum wage up this level, then obviously you have the higher level and that's going to bounce up as well. So you're always going to have a sort of a, a, an equilibrium in society with the poorest and the wealthiest that'll just keep going up all the time because everything is relative in terms of spending. I'd like to hear how you're going to address this. We're going to do so after the break. Stay tuned. the minimum wage eventually, and I'm going to give an obscene figure here, goes up to $20 an hour. Obviously, the upper realms will go higher to suit. So I, I'm concerned about this. You, you How do you, you ever... Can't just no, I, I'm really asking you this. No, How no, do you... The, the, well, you look at countries that actually have wage policies like the Scandinavian countries where they actually say people should, who work hard should get paid a reasonable wage to work an amount that they can actually live on, a living wage. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and they, in fact, are blazing... Uh, their economies are blazing the world. They're, they've Michael. got good corporate uh, sectors, strong corporate sectors, and the employers are not saying, let's see how low we can drive it and how much we can squeeze mm -hmm out of our workers, they're saying, uh, well, we pay our workers a fair wage and we'll expect them to do a fair day's work. Now, you said, just before the break, you said the solution was to get more money into the pockets of poor people. 
Uh, how do you do that? Whose money is that money that you're putting into their pockets, and where is it coming from? Well, the money is coming from this economy, which is generating fantastic amounts uh, of, of the wealth. The economy, no, no, and, I want and, a specific. Economy is all of us, everything. That's just, that's just pie-in-the-sky magic. The that, you haven't, that's not a plan. That's the, not a plan at all. The, and the government... You're going to take it from working people, aren't you? No, you're going to take it from, uh, through the government from yep. a tax system, yep, which from is working a, fair, people. A, fair, okay. a fair tax system. Uh, I think you should tax wealth. Okay, and in, in, and I think and, that's and, criminal. I and, think and, that's and, immoral. Well, but. well, there you go. Because <laughs> we disagree. I think government should reflect the values of people. Most Canadians say people shouldn't starve to death. Uh, people shouldn't uh, be forced to live in substandard housing. People shouldn't uh, be forced to live in those kinds of conditions. And that one of the roles of government is to reflect our collective values. That we should all help each other. Okay, and, so, and so, so we should have a progressive tax so system. That's what, what we've we have had in the last ten years. Is we've had a tax system. For instance, Paul Martin in the year 2000 cut a hundred billion dollars uh, out of the federal tax system. Where do you think that when he cut those taxes? It was health care funding, it was funding for affordable housing, it was funding for income assistance. Why do you think we have such a problem in our health care system now? When you yank the money out of the health care system, of course you get longer waiting lists. No, no, no. no. It's, it's just, the, the, the just, two are absolutely connected. Economically and and, and uh, why do we have so many homeless people? The government cancelled the national look, housing program look, in 1993. Look. No surprise. The capitalists... And the poverty advocate. You know, <laughs> the problem is the poverty advocate requires a capitalist to steal from, okay, because that's the basis of his philosophy. But it requires and, a fair and, and progressive and, tax system, and, and, which and most people agree no with. Such the only fair taxes, the only taxes I, I ever say are sales taxes, consumption taxes. There shouldn't be property taxes, income taxes, wealth taxes, nothing on anything virtuous or productive, uh, because that just destroys the whole productive system. You know what? System. We're out of time for today. Now, these two are going to continue to talk. <laughs> time but that's all the time we have. See you again next time. Welcome back. And if you're wondering what you're listening to, you're listening to Just Right on CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, where we'll still be with you from now till noon. And what you just heard was a clip from uh, the CTS network taped earlier uh, last month uh, featuring myself, host Christine Williams, and Michael Shapcott, who we were arguing about the uh, discussing the poverty issue. Now, Michael... You know, he, he, t he thinks that the idea of taking away money from the poor, you, when the government cuts taxes, what you're doing is taking away money from the poor and giving it through the rich, which, of course, is really completely backwards because he's assuming the money initially belongs to the recipient that got it through government largesse rather than to the person who actually created the wealth and earned it, which is, which is backwards. And, of course, why do the corporations want those tax cuts. They want to expand. They want to expand their, their pr productivity base, which means creating more jobs and maybe helping some of those poor people not be so poor. So it's a, not a matter of helping or not. It's all a matter of how you want to do it. Now, of course, the number one enemy of helping the poor on a very pragmatic level, let us say, is the existence of all our universal social programs, which aren't aimed at the poor, but at everybody particularly our totally uh, free-to-everybody uh, health care system. It's not just, you know, there for the poor and to help people who can't pay for their uh, routine medical expenses. And you would think that socialists who are so seriously concerned with helping the poor would want an emphasis placed on ensuring that only the poor, those unable to help themselves, would be the re recipients of any government-funded social assistance. But it's never the case. In fact, it's amazing how rabid they are when, they, when, you, when you bring this up with them. Uh, my ears are still ringing from the words of both Marion Boyd and Susan Eagle, who used to appear with me regular, regularly on uh, Left, Right, and Center back on CJBK. And uh, I'd ask both of them, whenever I ask them, you know, why should these government programs be universal instead of targeting them to the poor? And they both said, I don't know where they, what book they got this answer out of, but they said, well, because the rich pay taxes, they should be able to benefit from the services that they pay for as well. Okay. <laughs> now, if you follow through with that logic, um, that would mean that the rich should also receive government-subsidized public housing. They should get food stamps. They should get, you know, free food from the food banks. They should get all sorts of government services for free that they do not get and that only the poor get. Uh, does that make any sense to anybody? Uh, folks, if everybody's inside the safety net, I want to know who's holding it up? Like, how does this work again? And you, you know, if you wonder why we're in the trouble we're in, even by their own concepts, uh, they get it all wrong. 
that's about all I've got on that subject. So now I wanted to pick up on another subject we uh, talked about. Uh, I was going to do this last week, and we talked about it the week before, I believe. And this is already the third time I'm addressing this issue. And that's the downtown issue here in London. Do you see that picture of uh, Jeanette MacDonald, uh, manager of Main Street London, and Bob Usher, chairperson of the London Downtown Business Association? They were in the London Free Press on March 16th. And, uh, you know, I saw this big picture there, and all I could help thinking was, well, there's two of the biggest problems downtown. (laughs) Because the two groups that they each represent, neither of which is a business group, by the way, or association, as I explained thoroughly a few weeks ago. Um, But once again, we see, you know, in the article accompanying the picture, hopes high for the core. And you see that hidden agenda behind this denial that's always expressed in a negative. Listen for it. Quote, We are not pro-car, but we are (laughs) pro-people. We want a strong public transit system, says MacDonald. Now, of course, the we in this equation is, of course, them. And, uh, of course, they won't say that they're anti-car, which is what most of uh, the concern is all about. And once again, on another radio talk show, I heard a downtown merchant confront Bob Usher, making it very clear to him that the downtown merchants cannot exist without cars and traffic and a steady flow of traffic. And he also pointed how, you know, contrary to uh, the same assertion made by both Gord Hume and Bob Usher earlier, uh, that the absence of buses during that recent sinkhole we had downtown there, uh, that that wasn't felt by the merchants. And everybody's saying, well, sorry, that's just not true. It almost killed business for them. Now, Usher seemed to me to remain totally oblivious and totally disconnected from what the actual business people were saying. You could just hear Uh, the anger and frustration, and I saw it in a number of letters to the editor as well. And um, I wondered if the picture of Usher MacDonald, you know, uh, appeared on the 16th in response to this letter writer of March 14th, who wrote, quote, uh, where is Main Main Street London in revitalization? Quote, what I'm curious about is what Main Street London is doing and has done. This organization's purpose is to revitalize downtown, and it's been around a long time, and downtown still isn't revitalized. So what happened? Why has this organization been ineffective, and what are its plans for the future to make itself effective? And that was by Louis Leal of London. And now here's something on what I would think would be a real side issue, not even worthy of comment. And I certainly did not expect to read this on on this downtown situation, but this was from the Londoner. Uh, This would be now two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, and I'm quoting from the Londoner here. Quote, Bob Usher, chairperson of the Downtown London Business Association, which again, I must always repeat, is not a business association, it's a taxpayer constituency, okay, Uh, points to the many high-end entrepreneurs, several who also happen to be gay, as a critical factor in the core's revitalization as indicative of what professionals in the creative city movement have been saying for years. Jonathan Bancroft Snell is owner of Jonathan Interiors on Dundas Street and is a member of the downtown task force who also happens to be gay. Every city that has created a viable gay gay business district has been in areas that are visually appealing. The creative energies brought about by gay entrepreneurs, stereotypes aside, tend to be more entertainment and arts-oriented, end quote. Now, I really thought that was a weird thing to read in the middle of that article. You know, it started making me think, so is that what the fuss is really all about, creating a, a viable and visible gay bu- business district? Is, is, is that really the goal here? And, uh, which I'm not against in and of itself, but again, not with tax dollars, eh, folks? I don't think we've heard the last one on this one, folks, and I hear the BIA's task force are going to get started on all of this about April the 19th, so I don't know where that's going to lead. Take a break now, and when we come back, we'll be talking about more on global warming. I opened up a yogurt, and underneath the lid it said, please try again. They were having a contest I was unaware of, but I thought I might have opened the yogurt wrong. Or... Maybe your play was trying to inspire me. Come on, Mitch, don't give up. Please try again. A message of inspiration from your friends at your play. Fruit on the bottom, hope on top.
for most of 99% of human history, we were a local tribal animal. You know, people may have met 150, 200 people in a lifetime, may have traveled 150, 200 kilometers in a lifetime. We were a local animal. We didn't care what the tribe was doing on the other side of the mountain or over on the other side of the ocean. But now we've become so numerous and so powerful as a species. We now have to ask, what are all 6.7 billion human beings doing? We've never had to do that before. And it's very, very difficult. I was in Kyoto in 1997, where all of the negotiations took place. I can't tell you how frustrating it was. There were the fossil fuel people there, the auto fuel, auto industry, Alberta was there, saying, no, 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 it's not happening, we don't have to do anything. And meanwhile, all the different perspectives, China and India and Africa, they were all there. And we're trying to figure out what the hell do we do about this? So for me, as an environmentalist and a scientist, it's very frustrating how slow and difficult it is. It was a miracle that they cobbled together a, a, an actual program or plan. And the idea at Kyoto was this. We in the industrialized world, the rich countries, have created the problem in the first place. We're the ones that used all this coal and oil and gas and added too much carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So it was up to us to at least show the rest of the world, look, we can't keep doing that in depth. We're going to stop growing our emissions and we're going to start bringing it down a little bit. But that's the first thing. And we'll do that by the year 2012. And once we've shown that we in the industrialized world had brought it down, then we're going to bring China and India and Brazil and all of the other countries will come and we'll negotiate something for the future. And we all wonder if that future will ever arrive. Welcome back. Bob Metz here on CHRW 94.9 FM. That was David Suzuki as he appeared on the Weather Channel early last year in 2007, which I, I've called on this show Canada's leading global warming propaganda center. And as always, we hear the contrasted themes of the idyllic, you know, primitive tribal lifestyle of people with our currently environmentally unsustainable lifestyle of, specifically the West, of people and of affluence. You know, it's always the West it's aimed at. It's our fault, you know, not even mankind's fault in general, but specifically those of us in the more capitalist West. And even though uh, the so-called third world nations in Southeast Asia pollute far more than we do. I mean, if you can just listen to the stories coming out of China where the next Olympics are scheduled to be held, and you get some idea of what it's like. But, you know, it's still our fault, even though we've pretty much cleaned up our mess relative to the other nations. Now, David Suzuki is uh, purportedly a scientist who has now become one of the country's leading political lobbyists. And last week we talked about global warming, I guess more specifically the politics of global warming. I mentioned Maurice Strong and all the plans that were made in the 80s to begin the whole global warming campaign. But what about the science? What's new on the research front? Uh, boy, I'll tell you, more than I could possibly review within the confines of what I can do on radio. I keep a file folder at home. I call it Green Issues, where everything that has to do with global warming, energy concerns, things like that, uh, are concerned. And it's, it's just bulging with uh, new discoveries and new developments, including a lot of stuff that's on the negative side, too, but that's uh, generally repeat stuff. Uh, and as I mentioned previously on the show, there's been a lot more research done on global warming since Kyoto uh, than in all the years previous to Kyoto. And so here are just two of those items that I thought stuck out in my file over the recent, because they're kind of more of a summary viewpoint than getting into all the details. And I've skipped the, some of the details in these articles as well. One of them is, of course, by uh, Laurie Goldstein, February 28th, London Free Press. A big blow to Al Gore, reads the heading over his editorial, quote, one of the world's leading agencies in monitoring climate change says there's no link between global warming and the frequency or severity of hurricanes hitting the United States over the past century. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released a report last week assessing 105 years of hurricane activity in the U.S. from 1900 to 2005. They conclude, quote, economic damages from hurricanes have increased in the U.S. over time due to greater population, infrastructure, and wealth on the U.S. coastlines. 
and not due to any spike in the number or intensity of hurricanes. And once economic factors are considered, the Great Miami Hurricane of 1926 actually caused almost twice as much damage as did Katrina, $157 billion compared to $81 billion. Global warming may have actually decreased the number of hurricanes hitting the U.S. because that's how it seems to, uh, warming seems to affect hurricane formation that way. Global warming may decrease the likelihood of hurricanes making landfall in the U.S. These latest findings run contrary to the fear-mongering by Gore and company who insisted there's a direct causal relationship between global warming and the hurricane formations in his movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And then we have, uh, quote, the case against man-made warming, end quote, which appeared in the National Post on March 4th, written by University of Virginia Professor Emeritus of Environmental Sciences, Fred Singer. And I just quote the summaries here, quote, how much of the warming trend is due to natural causes and how much is due to human-generated greenhouse gases? The non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change report shows conclusively that the human greenhouse gas contribution to current warming is insignificant. We show that the 20th century is in no way unusual and that warming periods of greater magnitude have occurred in the historic past without any catastrophic consequences. Empirical evidence suggests very strongly that the main cause of warming and cooling on a decadal scale de derives from solar activity via its modulation of cosmic rays that in turn affect atmospheric cloudiness. Cosmic ray variations are also responsible for major climate changes observed in the paleo record going back 500 million years. Our findings of sustained point to natural causes and a moderate warming trend with beneficial effects for humanity and for wildlife. And even if a substantial part of global warming were due to greenhouse gases, and they insist, and it is not, they stress, any control efforts currently contemplated would give only feeble results. End quote. Now, of course, uh, I think this, this, is, this was my theory from the very beginning, and I, I've asked a number of people. I said, you know, the ice caps of Mars have been observed to be melting. That's not our activity, obviously. It just seemed that the sun was the most likely culprit. And, of course, we know that the three major things that affect uh, climate on the Earth, and uh, climate is long-term, not short-term, are, there, uh, first of all, the sun, second, the ocean, and third, uh, how much forest and greenery we, we have on the planet. So, uh, you know, there goes another theory for Al Gore out the window. Of course, this Saturday um, is the day we're supposed to turn off our brains for an hour and sit in the endarkenment <laughs> at 8 o'clock, uh, you know, turn off the lights and all that. And I read, I talked about this last week. Funny, I heard the fire department issuing a recommendation this week that went contrary to the recommendation given by the city that said, oh, you should be having candlelight dinners and sit in the dark. Well, the fire department doesn't want you to use candles, folks. They want you to use flashlights. They want you to burn energy from a non-renewable resource in those batteries which have to be thrown in the garbage when you're through with them, you know. And that way you can celebrate Earth Hour in the dark. <laughs> you know, I wonder if we're actually getting set up for third world rationing with these kind of symbolic things. I don't know if you've ever been down to some of the countries in the Caribbean, as I was in the 70s, Trinidad, countries like that. They would turn the power off for three, four hours every day. You weren't sitting in the dark, you were sitting in the light, but it was for industry, and that's pretty much uh, what they had to do there, because like us, they had a very socialist government and just weren't producing stuff. Quick break now, and we'll end up on a lighter note when we return. So we do a lot of traveling. You ever have this as you're flying down the highway, you pass by a field of cows, your buddy looks over at the cows, looks back at you and says, well, it's not going to rain. <laughs> standing up. <laughs> some old wives tell, right? If the cows are standing up, it's going to be a sunny day. If they're lying down, it's going to rain. If they got their legs crossed, you're getting close to Kitchener. Things you get to know along the way. How many people here have a gadget? 
All right, now how many people have a gadget they can't live without? Okay, how many people have a gadget they can't live without and aren't ashamed to show it to their preacher? Okay. A couple of hands were like, oh, no. See, we live in an age of gadgets. I mean, there's whole stores like Sharper Image and Brookstone filled with gadgets you didn't even know you needed until you walk in that store. Like, oh, a solar-powered nose hair trimmer. I got three of those, three of them. I bought this little gadget. It was a buzzer to help me find my car keys, and then I lost the buzzer. So... Uh, you talk about gadgets, cell phones are, are probably the top gadget, and cell phones are completely out of control. Like, remember when cell phones first came out, like back in the late 80s, and, the, and they were so big that it took like one person to hold the phone up and, and then the other person to dial the number? And now we got cell phones that can get email, they take pictures, they play video games and music, but they'll drop a phone call if a cloud goes overhead. I still don't own a cell phone, believe it or not, but I couldn't help but find myself identifying with much of the sentiment expressed in Toronto criminal lawyer Edward Greenspan's March 24th London Free Press editorial entitled Technology Apology. Blackberries should be for eating, not emailing, writes Greenspan, who proudly boasts that he has no computer, does not get any of his own emails, but relies on an assistant to do all that work for him. Quote, people spend hours every day checking emails. Since I don't know how to access my email, if I get an email when my assistant is not working, which she wants me to tell you is very little since I'm dictating this article to her, sometimes I have to wait for two days or more. And when my assistant goes on holiday, which my she wants me to tell you is also not enough, I go two weeks without seeing my emails, end quote. And with tongue firmly in cheek, I hope, at least, Greenspan explains. He says, quote, I don't like emails. In fact, I hate emails. I also hate blackberries, not the edible kind. I actually love blackberries, blueberries and raspberries, but I'm allergic to strawberries. No one talks to each other anymore. Two people in my firm who sit in adjoining offices have been working together for five years, email each other every day, and to this day, haven't actually met. <laughs> I don't know if I believe that, but I think I get his point. I find emails are also filled with drivel, he writes. Yet I have friends who can't live without their blackberries and can't even go to the toilet without them. They even use them while driving. A judge recently ruled that having any level of BBC, blackberry content, while driving is proof of impairment. Never get in a car with a drunk blackberry user. And a very recent study by Canadian research team discovered that consumers can suffer disconnect anxiety, a mental illness, a syndrome in which sufferers experience feelings of futility, desperation, disorientation, and nervousness when deprived of internet or wireless access for an extended period of time. These people feel, feel left out of the loop. And researchers claim that excessive day-to-day -day use of blackberries can be more harmful to your IQ than smoking marijuana. And yet, it's pot that's illegal, he writes. And then he says, and while I'm on the topic, why are blackberries blue? That's dumb, but I guess it just proves the point. <laughs> now, humor aside, Greenspan's observations that most emails are filled with drivel is one that kind of struck most home with me. I recall when email first came in on the scene, I was uh, you know, surprised by how much time I was wasting going through it all. And most of it was just conversational and, and, you know, personally, as a means of conversation, I think email is, is, is like a technological step backwards, given the much more advanced uh, live audio instant response and reaction time offered by that old invention called the telephone, you know. But I don't know about you, but it usually takes me longer to write something than it does to say something, uh, to say nothing of spam and viruses, I guess. Although I guess phones receive viruses in the form of uh, telephone solicitors or whatever. Now, on the other hand, for the transmission of official documents and notices and things like that, email is a giant leap forward, and, uh, you know, it, you really can't be without it. And, uh, you know, the irritation of email or the addictions of compulsive gadget behaviors are just two of the unintended consequences, I guess, of living in a highly technological society. But I'll tell you, when the rubber hits the road, to me, not having at least a computer in today's uh, society is very much like not having a telephone. 
So, uh, you know, in many ways, I really share Greenspan's attitudes towards email. And my friends are routinely hear me bitch and complain about email all the time. But unlike him, I just couldn't see living without that email, especially in a country that has its snail mail delivered by Canada Post. But that's it for us, folks, this week. And uh, we hope you will enjoy us, uh, or again, join us, I'm sorry, again next week. And we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, act right, and stay right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I think Bigfoot is blurry. That's the problem. It's not the photographer's fault. Bigfoot is blurry. And that's extra scary to me because there's a large out-of-focus monster <laughs> roaming the countryside. <laughs>